Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, Persevering in Hope, with a message titled, End Times Confusion. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There always seems to be someone who has a theory as to how current events fit so nicely into biblical prophecy. You know, some time ago, the matter of a Bible code became quite popular. It was a complicated matter of assigning numerical values to Hebrew letters. And then if you did it right and then you held your tongue just so, you should be able to see that the Bible predicted the assassination of some world leader or the rise of some contemporary issue and, and a host of other things. You know, in my own jaded matter, I often joke that You know, if you did your math just right, you'd probably find a prophecy for the invention of the flush toilet and the development of the Labradoodle as a new dog breed. See, that matter became a brunt of jokes, but unfortunately, such crazy teaching made us less serious about the second coming. And as we've seen thus far in our study of 2 Thessalonians, you know, we've come to see just how important it is to nourish a vibrant hope for the second coming. When the enemies of our faith arise, when it demands suffering to be faithful to our Lord, when we become hated by all because of the name of Jesus, how precious is the hope of our Lord's return. But if our minds are clouded by silly false claims, all pretending to have been found in the Bible, we just stop hoping. After all, so many people have got this stuff wrong, we say. The second coming is not the subject of serious-minded people, rather it's the subject of constant speculation. And that's what's begun to happen in Thessalonica. Hard-pressed, persecuted, under constant pressure, they had been steadfast. They didn't flinch. Indeed, they gave their enemies a response. It was a constant, steady, confident demeanor. It was also loving. It made their enemies wonder what these people knew that they didn't. But we know the Thessalonians were hopeful for the Lord's return. But then something cut in, and we read about that in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seemed to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The Greek word for coming is the word parousia, As we have already seen, we go back to chapter 1, verse 8. Please notice that this coming includes inflicting vengeance on his foes. And then in verse 10, at being marveled at among those who believe. But Paul has also spoken of his coming in the first Thessalonian letter. Chapter 4, 16, he speaks of the Lord descending from heaven, accompanied by the angelic cry of command, as the armies of heaven accompany him. And then, just to be clear, He assures them that anyone who has died before that event happens is not in some fashion disadvantaged. For, says Paul, the righteous dead will rise first, and then we who are alive will join them and meet the Lord in the air and so forever be with him. And so this matter of the parousia, or coming, is a grand event. It encompasses everything from the resurrection to the salvation of the saints to the judgment of the wicked. And since Paul has been at such pains to teach this, and and I have to assume that he's also taught then when he was physically among them, it seems to me that there should have been very little confusion about this matter. 
So you notice again how Paul states this matter in verse 1. Concerning the parousia, he says, or the coming of our Lord, and then he adds, our being gathered to him, making it clear that these grand global events of victory and judgment go right along with the gathering of the saints. They're all a part of one package, and so then, how can there be confusion? Indeed, Paul told them that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, you have no need to have anything written to you. Should have been clear. But then Paul writes 2 Thessalonians, and Paul's right. There was no need to write more. They should have been prevented from having any confusion at all. So go now to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, and he tells them they should not first be quickly shaken in mind. Another translation says to be quickly unsettled. The Greek word that Paul uses is used in other places in the New Testament. So, for instance, in Luke 6, 48, it has Jesus speaking, and he speaks about a house that's built on a rock. So, when the flood rose, said Jesus, it could not shake it. It was built on a rock. Well, another example comes from Acts 16, 26, when Paul and Silas were put in jail at Philippi. There at midnight, the prison was shaken. This was by an earthquake. And so we get the sense that when Paul says they were shaken, you get a sense that if they'd actually paid attention during their eschatology lessons, they wouldn't suddenly have come off of their foundation. But now they're shaken. The second word that Paul uses is the word alarmed. And Jesus used that same word when he spoke of the end times. Remember Mark 13 verse 7. It records Jesus as saying, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Now, to be alarmed is to be frightened. It's to be upset or even terrified. You see, some events were happening, and and then your mind races to all sorts of possible scenarios. And suddenly, you forget the end-time lessons you've been taught, and you come off your foundation, and you start to shake as a building might shake in an earthquake. You know, it's fascinating how easily that happens today. You know, sometimes global events happen and then we hear about it and instantly the prophecy reactionaries produce a book saying, this is the end times. And, you know, some time ago, one very popular preacher argued that the appearance of four blood moons in a year was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, that the moon will turn blood red and that this was a sign that the end times were now upon us. You know, I myself received a letter from a listener during that time. He asked me to explain how it was a sign of the end times, and I simply wrote back, it isn't. In another example, when, you know, one so-called prophecy expert came out with a book claiming that the Shemitah year or the Sabbath year in the Old Testament would, in our day, spring a series of disasters, and and I was asked about it, and I immediately poo-pooed it. And with that, I I remember one person saying, oh, I, I thought you believed the Bible. Yeah, but no sooner is this matter gone and all these people are exposed as false prophets that it seems to me everyone just forgets about it. And I fear those who ignore it are so easily unsettled and shaken and panicked and terrified when the next false prophet comes along. It just seems we never learn. And so the unsettling just goes on. Well, then something of that nature was happening in Thessalonica. And as I've said before, I am prepared to give the Thessalonian believers a bit of a break. After all, the New Testament had not yet been written. However, they did have the Old Testament teaching about the day of the Lord. 
And they did have Paul's very clear teaching when he was with them personally about what must occur when the parousia or the coming of the Lord is at hand. And that makes verse 2 so very strange. You know, some of them had believed that the day of the Lord had already come. And so this false teaching moved them from the foundation of what they already knew and then to a series of speculations, which clearly it was in direct contradiction to what they had been previously taught. And how did that happen? And the answer is that they were moved from that foundation because of three things. You know, first, Paul speaks of a spirit. And the Greek word is pneumatos, and it probably refers to some form of what would have been thought of as a spirit-inspired utterance or a word of prophecy that someone had given. Now, in his last letter, Paul had already addressed that matter. You know, go back to 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 to 21, and there it says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. And so, testing a prophetic utterance means that should someone say something which they claim to be from God, the first reaction of mature believers is to say, well, hang on for a second. We need to test that, test everything. And that means that we need to go to those things that we know to be true and to check what is being said against what we know to be true. That means we go to Scripture. If Scripture says that the parousia is going to be a grand visible event, then one should never fall prey to a word of prophecy which says that the day of the Lord has already arrived. Let me get back to that blood moon guy who thought a series of blood moons or red-looking moons was a fulfillment of Joel. All anyone would need to do is go back and read Joel, check out the context of the book, and it should be instantly clear that what this guy was saying had nothing at all to do with the book of Joel, but was in fact a sheer and utter fabrication. It was nonsense. How often we hear a prophecy teacher say something and then it's simply repeated as if it were true without going back to scripture, reading it in context, knowing what's true and checking it out for ourselves. If we did that, we'd never be shaken. Companions can be defined as people who band together for a common cause. Their combined resources accomplish together what they couldn't on their own. Well, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the clear, reliable teaching of God's Word, but we understand this great calling is not a solo effort. That's why this month, Back to the Bible Canada is introducing its new monthly partnership program called Companions for the Gospel. Companions for the Gospel consists of individuals across Canada who choose to pray and support ongoing Bible teaching in the form of a consistent monthly gift. The result? Lives transformed. To find out more about joining Companions of the Gospel monthly partnership, its impact, and the exclusive benefits it offers, or to offer a gift today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We come now to the second source of false information about the coming of the Lord. Paul says it came from a spoken word. And when Paul speaks of a spoken word, he's most likely referring to either a sermon that was preached or a teaching that was given in some format. 
Paul doesn't mention who might have taught this matter, and we do know that there were a number of itinerant preachers circulating through the early churches. Some, no doubt, were sound and good. But we also know that a great many false teachers circulated among early churches. You know, Paul seems to have been aware of this, that there were some false teachers who actually followed him. You know, Paul would go to a specific city, preach the gospel there, he'd win converts, he'd establish a church, he'd set up the leadership, and then he'd move to the next city. And soon after he was gone, the false teachers showed up waiting to sow confusion. It was diabolical. Now, we don't know if that's what happened here, but truth is that there are any number of different teachers circulating through the early churches. And very early on, believers needed to know how to weigh carefully what was being said. Who do you believe and who do you cancel out? Now, we, we might think that's quite a thing to ask of new converts, but it was necessary then, and it's surely necessary now. Every Christian in our day has access to a huge variety of teachers, and if they haven't learned to be on guard and to exercise discernment, they're going to fall for everything. A third avenue of false teaching is perhaps the most sinister of all. Paul mentions a letter seeming to have come from us. That would indicate that it is possible that people were trying to pass off forged letters that claim to have come from Paul, and, and Paul's aware of that. Go to the end of 2 Thessalonians, and there, 2 Thessalonians 3.17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Now, we do know that, that Paul dictated the letters he wrote to his secretary, and so you have to assume that they were written by someone else in someone else's hand, but Paul actually made sure that the final greeting was in his own handwriting as a mark of authenticity. 1 Corinthians 16, 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Galatians 6, 11, see with what large letters I am writing you with my own hand. Colossians 4.18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Philemon, verse 19, says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. So this gets done over and over again. It's like a signature, an authenticating mark in the end of a letter. But there are other marks as well. In the case of the Thessalonian letters, they would have been delivered by Timothy. He was a trusted representative of Paul. In the case of the Philippian letter, It would have been delivered by a man named Epaphrodites, a well-known leader in that church, so forth. That is, you don't have non-recognized, untrustworthy mail deliverers showing up claiming to have a letter written by Paul. Paul signed them all, and he sent them by trusted carriers. But there are other signs of authenticity that would have been available to the early church. Now, even though this does not speak directly to the question of authenticity still, it does speak of the matter of internal consistency in all of Paul's letters. What am I referring to? Galatians 1, 6-9. Paul says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. See, truth is truth. Now, Paul can't say one thing at one moment and then at the very next moment contradict those words with another teaching. 
You know, Paul made the claim, we find this, especially in the Galatian letter, that everything he wrote came as a direct revelation from the risen Christ. You know, and quite frankly, the Thessalonian believers should have detected that. And if Paul had already taught them that the coming of Jesus would be attended by the angelic army, by the crushing of all the foes, and all of the saints being gathered together to meet the Lord in the air, well then, if that were the case, wouldn't it be a direct contradiction to say that the day of the Lord had arrived? Well, of course it would. And for all those reasons, Paul makes the case that the Thessalonians should never have fallen for a bad report that the day of the Lord had already come. But that leaves us with a puzzling question, doesn't it? I mean, Paul mentions no more than there had been a report that the day of the Lord had come. And we have to ask ourselves, what is it that they thought? There are some who have suggested that perhaps there were some who spiritualized the second coming of Jesus. And so at least this is how this theory goes, that the day of the Lord had now happened in the hearts of God's people. And so there was no need for a literal future resurrection and judgment, so on. Uh, But of course, we weren't there and we can only guess. I do know that there are today some supposed believers who actually don't believe that Jesus will literally and physically return. And they argue that that we need to interpret all this matter spiritually, that the second coming only happens in our hearts. Well, furthermore, there are some in our day that have some fairly strange things to say about the second coming. For instance, after Jesus did not come back again in, in the year 1844, as the Seventh-day Adventists had predicted, they developed a teaching in which they argued that in October of 1844, Jesus moved from the holy place in heaven to the holy of holies in heaven and he began to cleanse it and perform something called the investigative judgment. It's complicated, it's not biblical, but I guess we can look at contemporary examples in which in some sense, people can have argued that the day of the Lord in some sense has come. But there's no indication that the Thessalonian Christians actually thought this was a spiritualized second coming and not a literal one. Indeed, by what follows, that there are events that must precede the coming of our Lord. Indeed, the fact that Paul builds his argument there means that he can't have been arguing against some spiritualized view of the second coming. So what was going on in the minds of the people who thought the second coming had arrived? Well, I think that it's quite likely that the Thessalonians believed that the beginning of the tribulation was an event that immediately preceded the coming of our Lord. I think it's also quite likely that those believers were suffering for their faith and they might well have believed that this is the Great Tribulation. I mean, after all, don't tell those believers who lived on the Indonesian island of Anbon to make a distinction between the Great Tribulation and the Tribulation they were then facing. I mean, back in those days when ISIS came onto that island in Indonesia, they went through villages and simply said, Christian or Muslim, whoever said Christian was immediately shot through the head. People died in waves. Do you think those believers were even slightly interested in the discussion of whether this was or was not the Great Tribulation? Of course not. But I am sure that those believers on Anbon who said, Christian, and then with those words, lay down their lives in solidarity to Jesus, they were comforted in knowing that Jesus is Lord, that he's coming again, and that justice will reign. So taking that example from Indonesian believers on Anbon, I would think that the Thessalonian believers might have been something like that. 
They may have been anticipating the coming of the Lord. Surely they were. And they may have thought that these are the events right before the coming of Jesus. So in my thinking, these believers viewed their troubles as the immediate precursor to the coming of the Lord. So I'm assuming that they were anticipating his coming at any moment. And furthermore, it's possible to translate the words, the day of the Lord has come, to also say the day of the Lord is in the process of coming. So if we're right now in the process of the coming of the Lord and we're still here, then what's going on? And so confusion reigned. Wasn't Jesus coming for us after all? And yet, here we are, and he hasn't come for us. It's also so with us today. Expectation regarding the second coming, you know, it seems to come and go in waves. You know, some will say, well, you know, we're right now at the very time when Jesus will return, or maybe it's going to be in the next year or in the next decade. And so expectation rises only to fall again, and we're left in a state of complacency or in a state of panic. If you want to maintain a vibrant hope in the return of Jesus, you want to remember what the Bible actually says about that event. You want to maintain a vibrant hope in the return of Jesus, but you'll also want to remain biblical. And if you remain biblical, you won't be easily unsettled. Your heart will be set on the second coming of our Lord, but you won't fall prey to every rumor or every unsubstantiated prophecy or every false teaching about Jesus. Keep our hearts fixed and unmovable on the coming of Jesus from the scripture itself. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you this. Why do you think it's that we're so driven to speculate around the return of Christ? I think even sometimes far beyond what the Scripture even reveals. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you know, the Scripture, we must confess that it does leave us with some questions that we can't answer on this side of history. You know, when we get to the other side, there will be some texts that will become overwhelmingly plain to us. But it's also, I think, natural for every single you know, believer to wonder what those events will be that lead up to the coming of Christ. So, you know, I don't want to put, you know, cold water on all speculation. I just simply want to say that we should always be very clear about the difference between what the Bible explicitly teaches and what we might speculate on the basis of that. Let's not make our speculation as if it's a dogma or divide on the basis of speculation. That's a real reason for concern. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Persevering in Hope, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations. It's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes the bi-monthly magazine, Truth and Life. This year, Truth and Life has had a unique discipleship focus, with each issue highlighting a different marker of discipleship. And thank you so much for your continued financial support. Your gifts allow resources like Truth and Life magazine and so many others to fulfill its mission and provide trustworthy Bible resources at no cost. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, visit backtothebible.ca 
or call 1-800-663-2425.